Hey, hey, hey. Hey, y'all. Welcome to a new episode of I Mean, Can We Discuss? And I am your host, Asher Ferguson. What's up? What's up? So I am coming down from a high. By the time you guys listen listen to this recording, it is the day after that I went to Marie Folio's book signing of Everything is Figureoutable. And if you need a book that is going to actually push you and question you on this whole entrepreneurship journey, I definitely recommend getting her book and going to her book signing. I definitely learned a lot from seeing her and felt inspired. Uh, She is definitely the guru of marketing. I always like to go to book signings because not only do you get more of a personal connection to these authors, but you actually get to see them live and you actually get to learn new marketing strategies as well and make connections, you know, meet new people, make new friends, all that good stuff. She's not sponsoring this episode. So I am doing this out of the kindness of my heart. So if you guys need something new, something inspiring, something business related with a little life coaching in it, definitely go get that John. But today I actually had the pleasure of interviewing Bradley Harper who is the author of Queen's Gamut. He released the follow-up to his Edgar Award finalist, A Knife in the Fog, on September 17th, which is the Queen's Gamut, which is published by 7th Street Books. He transports readers back to 1897 London when Margaret Harkness receives a letter from her old friend, Professor Bell. The real-life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes and her old comrade in the hunt for Jack the the Ripper. Inspired by the Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forrest, the author envisioned a similar story concerning Queen Victoria, who who in real life survived several assassination attempts, but puts his own twist on the killer that makes her quite the unexpected reveal. A little bit about Harper. He is a retired U.S. Army pathologist with over 37 years of worldwide military and medical experience, you guys. During his Army career, he performed some 200 autopsies, 20 of them, which were forensic. So Bradley is such a nice guy and hopefully if you go into the show notes and you actually go to his website and you learn more about him, let me know and tell me that you don't think he looks like Santa because I think he looks like Santa and I felt like I was talking to Santa over the phone and I was reliving my childhood Cause it was my daddy who told me Santa ain't real. Okay. He told me, nope, I'm getting these gifts. Santa is not coming over here. No sleigh delivering you anything. So without further ado, I hope you guys will enjoy this interview just as much as I did. And let's jump right on in. You're listening to, I mean, can we discuss? And I am your host, Astrid Ferguson. We will be discussing different issues that can be debated, articulated, chopped up any kind of way. 
there's no real set way to this. It could be culturally, it could be socially, it could just be how we're feeling today. So you're here for the randomness and I hope you're here to stay. So remember to subscribe, share, and tell me what you think. Welcome to a new episode of I Mean, Can We Discuss? And I am your host, Astrid Ferguson. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Bradley Harper. Hi, Bradley. Hello there. Thank you so much for inviting me me, uh, today. Oh, thank you for joining me on here. So tell us about yourself and where people can find you. Well, I'm a retired U.S. Army pathologist. I did uh, a little over 37 years of active duty, first in the infantry. And then one day I went on sick call and the doctor I saw was such an unpleasant person. I went home to, well, in words to that effect. I told my wife that if that guy can make it to medical school, I think I could. So I uh, went back to college after a break in service and uh, was accepted to med school, came back on active duty and traveled around the world and uh, became a pathologist. I did about 200 autopsies, about 20 of which were uh, forensic death investigations. And um Always an avid reader, but never really thought of, of being a writer because to me, writers are kind of ethereal uh, demigods that I could not, you know, ever hope to uh, to aspire to. And then after I retired, I uh, had the, the chance to strike a uh, correspondence with uh, the nonfiction writer Mary Roach. I wound up helping her to uh, to write a book or get into the re- medical research community about human research in the Department of Defense, and I saw the process she went through, and then how the information she gathered became a book, which was called Grunt. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's maybe I could do this too. I mean, Mary is a very funny person and very smart, but you know, she's she doesn't have superhuman powers. And I thought, well, you know, if I work hard enough, maybe I can. And so I sat down to write this story, and uh, five years later, I had a published book in my hand. Uh, so it wasn't quite as easy as I hoped it would be, but a happy ending all the same. And where can people co- uh, find me? Well, my first book, uh, A Knife in the Fog, uh, I involve Arthur Conan Doyle in the hunt for, for Jack the Ripper. And pleased to say I was a finalist for the Edgar Award for Best First Novel, and I just, a week and a half ago, two weeks now, won the Silver Falchion at Killer Nashville for Best Mystery for 2019 for that. So I'm very pleased about that. Um, I have a website, of course, uh, who doesn't? Uh, www.bharperb, the letter B and then Harper, H-A-R-P-E-R, author, A-U-T-H-O-R, dot com. And my books are available, Barnes & Noble, um, Amazon, any independent bookstore that sells mystery. Uh, the best place to look for my books, uh, a lot of the larger bookstores have a Sherlock Holmes section, so they tend to find my my first book there. My second book, Queen's Gambit, comes out uh, 17th of September, so a little over one week from today as we're uh, recording this, and I'm real excited about that also. Wow. That is that many years in pathology, huh? That's, yes, uh... ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> how do you sleep at night <laughs> well you know i uh how can i say i once i was doing an autopsy uh i won't go into too specific details but i'll just say that there was a uh, the cid criminal investigation division detective who was working the case came in with a photographer 
to uh, to observe me do the autopsy. And his assistant, a young military policeman who wanted to be a CID agent, they had to do six months with us with the CID agent before they were they decided whether or not to afford them for the training. So the young MP walks in and saw what I was doing and passed out right there on the floor. Uh, so I took off my gloves, checked his pulse. It was nice and steady, you know, so I drug him out in the hallway and, uh, you know, made sure he was comfortable. I went back and, uh, the photographer and the CID agent were both laughing. I said, don't laugh guys. He's the normal person. We're the weird people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. At least you're going to have a sense of humor about it. Uh, you have to, I've, um, I did enough forensics to realize that uh, I didn't want to do it full time because uh, you really do see the worst of humanity and some pretty tragic stories almost on a daily basis in a large in a large city anyway and I decided I didn't want a daily diet of that but still enough certainly to appreciate the the fine details that are required to do a proper exam and uh, when it was called upon me to do i i did my very best um the first case i did was when i was a resident and um it was a training accident uh again i won't go into too good greater detail but my supervising pathologist was an air force uh forensic pathologist and the first thing he taught me was he said when non-forensic uh pathologists people who are not full-time mes when they do a forensic case the most important thing the most common reason for the defense attorney to get their autopsy thrown out of court is that they can't prove who the autopsy report was on. So he taught me to, the first thing I did was I took a thumbprint from the body and put it on the back of the autopsy permit. I circled it, put my initials on the date, and then he put his initials and dates, had a witness. So I can say that this report pertained to the, to the thumbprint from this body. And that way there was an irrevocable proof that everything I, I found pertained to this individual. Oh, wow. So would you say that after going through all of this, like, is that how you come up with some characters for your novel? Or do they like magically appear while you're traveling? <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, my first book, I can honestly say that I took someone's advice and said, you know, look for a book that you'd like to read and if it hasn't been written, then write it yourself. Uh, I've always been a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. I think a lot, most doctors are because the way that we come up with a differential diagnosis and finally figure out what's going on is a process very similar that Holmes use, uses in finding out who the, who the bad guy is. Um, so anyway, I, I was reading uh, his bio one day on Wikipedia and saw that the very first home story, a knife and excuse me, a study in Scarlet, he was he wrote that in 1886, and nobody wanted to buy it. He he finally, in desperation, sold it for 25 pounds to this publisher, and surrendered full full copyright. So he was so mad about that. He said, "I'll never write another co- a crime story, waste of time." And he went into historical fiction. So finally, in um, November, December of 1887, uh, almost a year later. Uh, Studying Scarlet came out to rave reviews, did very well, but Doyle was not interested in going back to Holmes. He said, no, that waste of time. So he still had a bad taste in his mouth. So he didn't go back to writing Holmes until 1890. So there was a four-year gap between the first Holmes story and the second, A Sign of Four, quickly followed by A Scandal in Bohemia, 
which is my favorite Holmes short story because of the female character, Irene Adler. The Jack the Ripper murders were 1888. He suddenly started, he suddenly stopped without knowingly being caught. And I thought of writing a story where I could involve Arthur Conan Doyle in the hunt for Jack the Ripper that would explain why the Ripper suddenly stopped without knowingly being caught and why Doyle eventually returned to writing Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so you kind of reinvented that with Queen's Gambit. I did. In Queen's Gambit, I have a, a female character in the first book who was also a real person. Her name was Margaret Harkness, and she was an author, uh, a suffragette, and she was living in, the, in Whitechapel during the Ripper murders because she wrote about the working poor. So she wanted to live life like her characters so she could more accurately portray um, their, their lives. So I have her become eventually, at first, the guide, eventually a full-fledged member of the team, the third member of the team being Professor Joseph Bell, who was Doyle's professor of surgery and who was Doyle's inspiration for the character of Sherlock Holmes. So the three of them together, they call themselves the, 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 the Three Musketeers, and they uh, eventually you know, cracked the case, of course, and uh, everything is explained at the end. But anyway, Margaret is my principal character in book two. And there's a book there which inspired Queen's Gambit. There was a very good book written, uh, came out in 1973, I believe, by Frederick Forsyth called The Day of the Jackal. And it's about a fictional assassination attempt on, uh, on Charles de Gaulle. Now, in Forsyth's novel, the assassin is a cold-blooded mercenary who's who's looking for this to be his big score and then retire the rest of the life on the on the payout. In my story, my assassin is a poor a guy who's manipulated by the anarchist to do this. So he's an unwilling assassin who's, you know, basically a pawn uh, from other forces that are, you know, dictating what he's doing. And so I try to have him as a sympathetic character. So I wanted to take the, the Frederick's Forsyth story, but do a little twist on it. And my and my uh, my target this time is uh, Queen Victoria during her Diamond Jubilee celebration. I was reading about that. I was surprised to find out that she was 78 years old at the time of the of her celebration and she had bad rheumatism. And uh, the ceremony was to be at St. Paul's Cathedral, but she didn't want to be seen getting out of her carriage and hobbling up the steps into the cathedral. Plus, she hated St. Paul's anyway. She said it was dark and gloomy. So she sat in her carriage outside at the steps for the whole 20 minutes of the ceremony. And I thought, you know, that's the perfect place for an assassin. If they want to start, you know, political trouble to have her killed during the Diamond Jubilee ceremony right at the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, that would have the maximum effect. And so that all just kind of came together in my mind. And and the result is is uh, is uh, Queen's Gambit. And we'll see how, how it does comes out, uh, as I said, I already told you that. So I'm kind of got my fingers crossed. It's a different style from the first book. And um, hopefully my readers will uh, will go with me on the on the story and, 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 and enjoy it. Okay. Now, you want to tell people the, the, the date. You want to tell it over and over so people can remember it. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I don't want to beat the drum uh, too loudly, but I'm not shy. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Tuesday, September the 7th. I'm having a book launch at uh, the Fountain Bookstore in Richmond, Virginia. They've been really uh, supportive to a no-name author like me. That I, I did an event for the first book there as well. And if you show up, uh, I'll give you cake. And if they'll let me share, share a little Prosecco, I might do that as well. 
Oh, what kind of cake? Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good question. There's a, a there is a lady who does these fantastic cakes. Uh, she was on some cooking show. Uh, uh, I forget now the name of the show, but it said in Baltimore or the king of cakes or something like that. Um, so what she does is she does a picture of the book cover and that's like the middle half and then around the edges. So there's two different kinds of cake. And I think I wanted one to be uh, Tahitian vanilla and the other, I, oh, I'm blanking maybe, oh, maybe chocolate. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, there's, so there's two different kinds of cake. So if you don't like one flavor, you got the other. And, oh, uh, yeah, so, chocolate. Yeah. Chocolate definitely for me. I try to be, uh, you know, a man for all seasons. <laughs> so tell me, you said you didn't always aspire to become a writer. So what was probably the most difficult thing for you um, becoming a writer, especially now after so many years in pathology? Yeah, well, I, I was used to stringing sentences together and I've done lots of Oh, I'm sorry, the creaking of my my chair. Mm -hmm. um, I'm used to uh, writing a lot in the military. Uh, besides being a pathologist, I was a commander four times, and I worked in the uh, Pentagon. So I'm used to putting out a report, a factual report, on a short suspense that's succinct. And um, so stringing words together, paragraphs, w was easy for me. The difficult thing for me was was dialogue. Every character has to have a unique voice. That mm -hmm. uh, that you know, a way of speaking, vocabulary, expressions, verbal tics, whatever, so that uh, more often than not, just by the words they use, you know who who's speaking. I mean, I still use he said and she said that sort of thing. And I found out that about every third sentence, I had the word that <laughs> somewhere in it. My first editor mm -hmm. threw about a four through about four hundred uses of the word that in the first uh, first draft. Uh, so my own little uh, ticks that I had to be aware of and and uh, and weed out, but yeah, dialogue I think is um, is the most difficult. Now, once I decided I really wanted to do this, I had some GI Bill coming to me, so I did an associate's uh, degree in creative writing at Full Sail University online. And um, one of the things that we had to do, most of my classmates wanted to either write for games. Or, or write screenplays. I was the only one who wanted to be a, uh, a, a novelist. And although I didn't really want to be um, a screenwriter, I had to learn how to, how to write a screenplay. And um, sc words uh, in a movie are very precious. Every single word has to count. Uh, there's no there's no fluff. The uh, the cost of the production is very expensive. So you want to get the maximum for every minute on film. So learning to write screenplays taught me to be very lean on my dialogue and try to have the maximum effect. And if it doesn't advance the story or reveal character, then then you uh, you have to have to take it out. So I would rewrite dialogue, you know, 10, 12 times to get it down to the minimum number of words. They don't want more than three lines of dialogue per instance. Otherwise, it's considered too long. They, they don't want speeches. They want quick back and forth. Now, one of the things in my first book, which I found challenging but uh, very enjoyable, was my three protagonists. I really did have three three protagonists. Doyle is telling the story as a memoir, but Belle and uh, Margaret get a lot of time as well. And when they had the three of them, 
uh, in discussion. I found balancing that between the three to be very challenging. But after the fact, once the book was all done and it was published and I was looking at it, I realized that what I had done was I had taken the three aspects of the human personality and ascribed each one of those to one of my individuals. Doyle was ego, very proper, everything, proper British gentleman. The peas can't touch the carrots. You know, rules are made to be followed. Uh, he was always a, 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 how should I say, a line of one, you know, waiting to form. Bell was super ego. He understood that there were rules, but he could also look at the bigger picture and know that there's sometimes when you have to go around them to achieve a larger purpose. And then Margaret was pure id. She said what she thought as soon as she thought it. And I said, she's the kind of person... Most of us take about three steps drinks to uh, become and having those three distinct personality types interacting while it was challenging uh, really brought the page to life. And I and a number of my reviewers have said the thing they enjoyed the most about the story was the interplay of those of those three characters. OK, yeah, I mean, I hear that dialogue is very important um, in novel writing but in scripture the dialogue gets cut back extremely lean so I have definitely heard that before so what would you say that you love most now about being a writer oh wow (laughs) I have a ball Uh, (laughs) you know I can take my characters all sorts of different ways what I like to do is know them very very well and say, well, what is the one thing they would never do? And then make them do it and make it uh, believable, make it, you know, consistent with the storyline. Uh, so that's that's really a, a challenge for me. And I enjoy challenges. So it's like I'm I'm solving and creating a puzzle at the same time. I'm creating a puzzle for the reader and solving it for myself. So uh, I get paid to play. I, it's, I cannot believe how much fun I'm having at this stage of my life. And I tell my friends, if I known how much fun retirement was going to be, I would have done it right after college. Oh, I I hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting for my fun to sit in. I I say once my kids leave the house. Understand completely. (laughs) So are you an independently published author or do you have a publisher? I do have a, 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 a publisher. I'm with Seven Street Books. And when I signed with them, they belonged to uh, Prometheus Publishers, which did primarily nonfiction. They had a, a sci-fi slash fantasy imprint. And then Seven Street was their crime stories. Now, right as my first book came out, they were sold to Start Media. And unfortunately, there was a huge, you know, at, during that transition, I had zero publicity from the publisher. And uh, that obviously I feel had to uh, have affected the, my, my sales. But to their credit, they're really going full bore uh, to support Queen's Gambit. And so um, hopefully my re- hopefully I'll discover new readers who will then go back and, and discover Knife in the Fog. And, and so all, all will be well. Uh, so, I, of course, to be traditionally published, you have to have an agent. And I am proud to say that 79 agents turned me down before the 80th one said maybe. And um, <laughs> so it's you know, been a I, long journey to find a publisher, huh? It has. It has. I, I tell my children that the secret to success is being pleasantly persistent. Right. 
and you it was important to you to be published or were you considering to go self-published i would i I did play around with that i I looked at it and i said boy that's an awful lot of work and number two you know getting getting your book out there in the in the marketplace someone said there's something like two thousand new books a day now that come out Mm -hmm. so being lost in the shuffle is very easy to do so i thought that with the with the outreach of a traditional publisher, you know, I wouldn't have to fight to get my book into bookstores. For example, I still, whenever I go into a bookstore, I'll see if they have my book on the shelf. And if so, go up, identify myself, say, would you like to like me to sign my books? And I always say, yes. So I, I still (laughs) just love signing my book. And then they'll slap that sticker on there signed by the author. And I go, yeah, that feel that never gets old. In fact, I paid uh, a guy who makes handmade pens, I, I have a special pen. I call it my Excalibur, and I only use that pen for signing books. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so with going with a publisher, are you still very much responsible for your marketing, or do they help you with that as well? They, they help me with that. Now, I also do some on my own. I have a young lady who... Uh, who supports me uh, up in Toronto. She does my social media and we recently hooked up a, a blog tour to promote the first book while, um, while start was publicizing the, the, the second one, uh, hoping for some crossover there. And, um, so, so yeah, it's obviously they'll do some and then this new publisher, as I said, is more aggressive, but at the end of the day, um, anything you can do for yourself is just that much more, um, to keep from getting again from getting lost i go to i go to writers conferences on author panels uh, i give talks uh, which i enjoy by the way as a i had do one talk which i gave at the historical novel society in june on uh, sherlock holmes as science fiction uh the the techniques that uh, doyle has holmes use in his stories did not exist at the time of the Holmes stories um and there was one french physician a lawyer, he was both certified in medicine and law, who loved the home stories and used them as his inspiration to form the world's first crime lab in Lyon, France. So I give a talk about what were the brief history of forensics and then how this particular uh, Frenchman developed this laboratory. And he was given two years to to prove its worth. And he had difficulty having Courts would throw uh, would throw out his evidence because the defense lawyers say, "Oh, this is all you know theory. There's nothing proven." So he wasn't able to make any impact until he was getting close to the end of the two years. And then I tell about the case where he made his big breakthrough, and shortly thereafter, crime labs became standard throughout the major police departments in the world. Oh, I mean that's obviously I am very excited for you because it's a big change from what you're accustomed to. Oh, yes. Um, and do you have any upcoming events and book signings that you want to share with all of us today? Well, see, next Saturday I'll be at the Crime, Creature, and Creativity Conference in uh, Columbia, Maryland. I'll be on a couple of author panels there and, of course, some book signings. And then, of course, September the 17th, uh, my big book launch. And then I'll have some online activities, but nothing else in person that I know of at the moment. Um, I also work as a professional Santa Claus. 
And <laughs> yes, I work at, uh, I don't know if, can I say yeah. where I work? Okay. Yeah, I work sure. at Bush Gardens in Williamsburg. And uh, I work two venues there. They have a toy shop and then they have uh, um, this dinner theater. And I'm, I'm the swing Santa. I'm the one who works both venues. There's one Santa who works only dinner theater. And then there's some others who work strictly at the toy shop. And I, and I go back and forth between those two. So we're going to have a new show this year. So I need to start rehearsals the 21st of October. My wife works as Mrs. Claus. We work together. And so we'll need to learn this new show and train the elves and get all ready for that. And we'll go live uh, the day after Thanksgiving. So we got to get all, all ready for that. Oh, that's awesome. So you're that guy that, let's say in my age, I would, when I was little anyway, I would come up to you and say, oh, Santa is real. Pull your beard and it wouldn't come off, right? That's so correct. Make my day. That's correct. I have a full white beard. In fact, particularly ladies from Japan will pull on my beard because, of course, Japanese men don't grow big white beards. And they're always mm -hmm. amazed that it's that it's real. And I just laugh. It's uh, as long as you get a big handful, it's fine. When a baby gets two or three hairs <laughs> in their <laughs> fist, that, that, that hurts. Uh, yeah. And Santa has a funny smile on his face. Uh, i tell you a quick story. Last year, I had a little girl about five or six. She came up to me with her letter to Santa and had various letters, X's and R's and Y's and Z's, scribbled all over it. I looked at it. I said, honey, what does this say? And she said, I don't know, Santa. I can't read. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Best job ever. This will be my seventh season at Bush, and I, I really enjoy it very much. It's a very nice counterpart to what I did previously in life. So, you know, I think like, uh, you know, life is full circle and I'm becoming more, more of a child all the time. Oh, that's, that's always great to hear. I, I say that because if I share a quick story with you, when I was little, I was like a diehard believer in Santa Claus until the age of seven. Mm -hmm. And, you know, cause I used to live in New York city. That's where I grew up. And we would go to like the Macy's and they would have the Santa Claus there. And this one time my dad said to me, cause he had it. He said, Santa Claus isn't real. And it's time that you came to terms with it. Uh, and I was like, no, he's real. He's right over there. And he's like, that's not a real guy. Go pull his beard. I pulled his beard and it happened that um, he was like you. He had a beard and it was real and it didn't come down. So I was like, see? Santa is real, and he does care about the children, and he does come to visit us. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Well, if I could tell you another quick story. Uh, my third day on the job, I said, oh, this is pretty easy. The kids sit in my lap, ask them what they want. They tell me. I'll say I'll look into it. I never promise anything. And uh, we post a picture, and then they leave, and the next family comes. I said, oh, I can do this. And then when my elves come up and she says, Santa, you're about to see three children who've been orphaned for the last year. And uh, the foster parents keeping them have just been approved to adopt them, which means that they would grow up together. They wouldn't be separated. And they want you to tell them. Oh. So uh, it was a 12-year-old girl and her two younger brothers, 10 and 8. So the 12-year-old... She was at. The, she was just kind of playing along, you know. The ten-year-old at ten, 
they don't really believe, but they don't want to say so just in case they're wrong. You know, they're kind of hedging their bets. The eight-year-old, his eyes were enormous and brown and believed, to- totally believed. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, so I really didn't have any time to repair. So I said, well, uh, what would you like for uh, for uh, Christmas? And they talked. And honestly, I didn't hear a word they were saying. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, so they finally finished. I nodded. I said, okay, I'll look into it. And then it came to me. I said, but I have something for you today. They said, what's that, Santa? I said, a family. Oh, that was nice. And became a believer. <laughs> well, I, I did. Uh, I say, that's the moment that I became Santa. It was no, no longer just a job, but something more important than that. Oh, well, I'm glad you're doing this, and especially for the children. Thank you. Well... Those were all the questions that I had for you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And if you could please remind everyone again where they can find you and of your upcoming novel. <laughs> of course. Well, my uh, my website is www.bharperb, as in boy, H-A-R-P-E-R, author, A-U-T-H-O-R, dot com. And uh, you can, I have a web page on Amazon, of course, Bradley Harper, and you can find me on Goodreads. And um, you can find my books at uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and, but I really love independent bookstores that carry mystery books because I think independent bookstore owners are the true champions of the written word. And if you can support your local bookstore, by all means do it. I'll be doing my book launch and signing uh, at the Fountain Bookstore, and it's not too late if you want to pre-order queen's gambit everyone who pre-orders from the uh the fountain bookstore i have a little button i had designed as a picture of queen victoria and underneath it says we are not amused wow well thank you so much for that bradley and i wish you so much success thank you so very much thank you for your time and uh, i'm just having fun (laughs) okay ciao until next time everyone Until next time, thank you. Bye-bye. And that was a wrap for today. Thank you so much for listening to, I mean, can we discuss? Don't forget to subscribe, follow us if you want to see what we're up to, what projects we're up to, and enjoy the rest of your day, night, wherever you might be. I was your host, Asher Ferguson, signing off.